Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Ross Douthat, and this is The Argument. It's been a little while since I've said that intro. I'm back from my brief time away from the show, and oh, how I've missed all of you. In my absence, Michelle and the redoubtable Aaron Redica have been taking a closer look at what President-elect Biden might accomplish in his first 100 days. It's a series we've been calling The 46th. Today, we're going to continue that series with a look across the aisle and argue about what might happen with Republicans in the Biden era. Later in the episode, Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics will join me to talk about where Trumpism came from and whether it might outlast Trump himself, if any of us outlast Trump. But first, I'm joined by my new colleague, Jane Coaston. Hey, Jane. Hey, Ross. Thanks for having me. Jane just came to The Times from Vox, where, among other things, she co-hosted their policy podcast, The Weeds. And sometime in the new year, she'll be joining this show, not just as a guest, but as a host. So we figured we should have her on now so she doesn't feel incredibly intimidated when the time comes to take the mic from me. Um, Do you feel intimidated now, Jane? Mildly? Somewhat? That's good. That's good. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Um, Or it's the mind killer, one of the two. One of the two. One of the two. So let's just get into the show. There are plenty of long-term questions about what Republicans might do, how the party might change or not during a Biden presidency. But right now, the most immediate force shaping the GOP is obviously a denial that Biden was even elected president at all. And I have my own ideas, various ideas about the roots of this voter fraud paranoia. But I want to start with your take, Jane, because along with your podcasting duties, you spent years writing about conservatism and the American right over at Vox. And I think it was always guaranteed that Donald Trump would claim that this election was stolen. But have you been surprised at just how many Republicans believe him? Not at all. I think that it's worth getting at just from the top that this is perhaps the ideal position in many ways, even without the conspiracy theorizing for Republicans, because Republicans are now in their absolute favorite position, which is disloyal opposition. There is no expectation that Republicans will have to develop a replacement for Obamacare. There's no understanding that Republicans will have to really do anything but be the opposite of whatever is taking place right now. But I also, I'm not at all surprised that there are so many people who purportedly believe in the conspiracy theories, and I say purportedly very much on purpose, because I don't think that Senator Ted Cruz is really convinced that this election was quote-unquote stolen, especially with the you know, very complex use of Dominion conspiracy theories that somehow only works in certain states, even though many of the states where these conspiracy theories have taken hold didn't use those voting systems. I think Senator Ted Cruz or Senator Josh Hawley or all of these people have 
in many ways, political and I would argue financial reasons for making these arguments. And I know that that sounds cynical, but we live in a very cynical time. And it's important. This show is a cynicism free zone. Oh, I'm, I just want to I just want to warn you about that. It's very it's sort of <laughs> achingly sincere, like like a certain we, kind of Wes Anderson moment. So just, just to in warn the woods, you. the podcast. Yeah. Um, no, I think that there very much is a sense that because Trump is an effective driver within the Republican Party, though notably he drives people both towards the Republican Party and drives them screaming, fleeing away from the Republican Party, but he's a driver either way. It is extremely important to Republicans to go along with whatever he's saying, not necessarily for their own vote totals, but for fundraising and for reducing the instance of getting primaried by somebody who's perhaps more Trumpy than they are, as we saw happen in 2017 and 2018. Well, so let's talk about some different kinds of voter fraud belief, right? Because when you're, you're talking about figures like Ted Cruz, who has not actually, I think, come out and said that he believes in voter fraud, he's just said, these are very important constitutional issues, and he'd be happy to argue a case before the Supreme Court about them, right? And Ted Cruz had the very much, you know, well, if you need me, I'm right here, that anyone who has ever offered to do anything after, say, a large dinner would say, like, if you need me to do the dishes, I'm here. But you'd really prefer no one calling you to do aforementioned dishes. And when you're confident that even Samuel Alito is not actually interested in any kind of dishwashing, to extend nope. the meta- metaphor, nope. it's a pretty safe thing to say. So that's, you know, that's the Cruz case. And then you have, I think, as you say, a large number of Republican office holders who fear Trump, rely on Trump, some combination thereof, and so aren't going to get on the wrong side of his voter fraud claims, especially, you know, as long as there's litigation pending. So that's sort of the political side of things. And then there's the sort of grift side of things in the sense that there are obviously people who see an opportunity, you know, Chris Ruddy, who runs Newsmax, you know, when he gives interviews about what he's doing with his network and their competition with Fox, he's basically saying, well, we're giving the people what they want, right? He's not avowing fierce belief in voter fraud narratives, but his his, uh, network it's there for what the audience wants. But then there's the audience itself, right? And so I, I will say that I have been surprised just by how many people I know personally who are um, a, in a pretty broad range from, you know, people I only know online, people I only know by their anonymous Twitter handles to people I know in real life, people who you'd go to church with, people who are, you know, the parents of college roommates, et cetera, just sort of extending out through social networks who seem totally sincere in their conviction that um, the election was stolen, who don't seem to me to be sort of doing a kind of performative partisanship, um, really. Right. I I think it's important, though, that conspiratorial beliefs or conspiratorial belief systems of any kind, there's a reason why they are so tempting. And they are tempting not just because they tell you something that you want to believe. And for, in this case, the idea 
that Joe Biden, who was perceived and repeatedly the messaging from conservative media was that Joe Biden was somehow barely alive. But somehow this barely alive person got 80 million votes and won the presidential election. That would be too deeply challenging for a lot of people. So it's far easier to find another source of this understanding. But also, the temptation of conspiracy theories is not just telling people things that make life seem better or more understandable, but it's also the allure of insider knowledge, which I think that something you get at in your column a little bit, and I, I, which I really appreciated, is that the idea of questioning and doubting official forms of knowledge has been something that's been a part of movement conservatism for decades, this idea that what you are being told or by official entities is untrue, and historically it often has been, but movement conservatism has long prided itself on both doubting official forms of knowledge and on the benefits of what I would argue to be purity spirals, which I think gets into the grifting element of this. Right. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned Louise Mensch, and last night on Twitter, somebody went and dug up one of her peers, this guy who ran something called the Palmer Report, oh, which was also, you know, briefly big online in the aftermath of Trump's victory in 2016. And it was not surprising, but totally striking how exactly his coverage of 2016 matched a lot of what you see in the coverage of 2020 on the right. So, you know, a headline will say, Donald Trump's impossibly strong support in Wisconsin counties that used electronic voting. Researchers find alarming Wisconsin pattern even when adjusted for demographics. Or rigged election, two Wisconsin voting blocks had more ballots cast than registered voters. These are being applied to 2016 and the argument being that the election was rigged for Trump and now exactly the same arguments are being made in 2020. And I mean, so one one question is like, how how different is this fundamentally, right, than the pattern of conspiracy theories that's attended almost every American election in my lifetime. They were pretty mild after 2012, the Obama-Romney race. But, you know, the, the theories that John Kerry lost Ohio because of voting machines were very potent in 2004. You have clear patterns among Democrats. There's no reason to think that this stuff is confined to Republicans. But you also have, under Trump, a situation where the leader of the party is encouraging it and driving it on a scale that doesn't have, you know, there, there, there isn't actually a comparison between this and, you know, Hillary Clinton saying, oh, it was an illegitimate election. Trump is going a lot further, a lot faster and has prepared the ground for this, too. It's, you know, sort of set up the argument that this would be a rigged election from the start. But does this then change anything? Is the Republican Party in Congress going to behave differently because of this stuff in 2021 than they did with Obama in 2013? No, no, not at all. And I want to go back to something which I think is important. I, I think that it is worth noting if you um, if you read the Twitter accounts or read the pieces that are written by people who I think are not the Linwood-esque, griftiest grifters within this movement, but are 
I think in some ways aligned with this movement. There is a repeat, a repeated phrase of, well, this isn't any crazier than your accusations regarding the Russia hoax, which I think kind of gives the entire game away. The implication that we don't actually believe this, but this is our response to that. This is our response to what we believe to be your false allegations. We're just going to come up with our series of false allegations. But I don't think it changes anything. I think that the Republican Party will be as obstructionist as it was in 2013 or 2009 or any series of events. Because I think that, again, the obstructionism in some ways is the point. Because the ideal is that things do not get done, that the grinding gears of of Congress are thrown into disarray because government doing things is not necessarily the point of conservatism. Not necessarily because of a evil, vindictive sentiment against the American people, but a real, genuine, and I think in some ways good faith belief that government doing things is generally bad. When the government works well and does things effectively, things happen that conservatives do not like. And many of those things might be a mandatory $15 minimum wage or UBI or Medicare for all. I think that that understanding for me, that this conspiracy theorizing, had that none of this happened, had Donald Trump said, you know what, I lost, moving on, going back to Mar-a-Lago, see you guys in four years or whatever, I think that you still would have seen this level of obstructionism, the same obstructionism that you saw in 2009, the same obstructionism that you saw in 2013, the same obstructionism that I think has become part and parcel of what the Republican Party has looked like since the contract with America back during the Republican Revolution of 1994. So let me try and qualify that argument a little, because I I agree with a lot of it. But I think there are a couple places where the power of the voter fraud narrative could make a difference. To start out, even though I'm not a government governs best that governs least libertarian, um, I am personally one of the people who's perfectly happy with um, a style of divided government in which Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Joe Manchin hold the balance of power in the Senate. That, that seems to me to be a totally fine scenario for America at the moment. And I, and I think that those people who I just named, um, particularly Collins and Romney, to the extent that they're willing to work with Democrats, right, to the extent that there are a couple Republican senators who are interested in sort of forcing some small-scale legislative compromises as an exception to the pattern of obstruction you're describing, I don't think that changes because of this narrative. What I do think maybe it changes is two things. One, there's a group of Republicans in the Senate who have ambitions to lead the party someday, who have sort of ambitions to be slightly Trump-like figures after Trump, and who have in various ways been critics of the kind of strict, you know, government action bad kind of narrative, right, that you're describing. These are, you know, figures as various as Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton to some extent, right? And those are guys who I think, I think there's a world where there are a few things that a Biden administration could do that they would be supportive of as part of their attempt to sort of build a portfolio that's a little distinct from strict small government conservatism. I think in this world of, you know, a sort of pre-delegitimized Biden, that gets a lot harder for them and their incentives become 
more obstructionist than they would be, certainly if Biden had not had such a narrow victory in the key electoral college states, right? And then the other thing that I think this affects is just um, the power of Donald Trump as sort of permanent leader of the opposition himself, right? Like, the more this narrative isn't just sort of a brief post-election thing, but sort of takes permanent hold, the idea that this was, you know, a genuinely stolen election, the easier it is for Trump to say, I'm the leader of the party, I'm running again in 2024, and I deserve to be the nominee because, you know, the Democrats stole the election from me. And I think that does also change. It changes incentives for Republicans who want to run in 2024. It changes incentives in 2022. I think it has certain effects that go beyond the kind of will Mitch McConnell obstruct question. What what do you think about that? So my thought is, what exact motivation do any of the people who think of themselves as potential future leaders of the party have to make deals? Perhaps I'm too cynical for any program, but deal-making serves very little political purpose because at a certain point, if you saw how Republicans have used Mitt Romney as a cudgel against other Republicans for being a rhino, a squish, someone who's willing to do bipartisan deal-making. So I think that what leadership of the Republican Party will look like will be, can you be the most obstructionist? Can you be the person who stands athwart whatever Democrats are attempting to do, even if it's something you would normally agree with? I think what we're, I've been joking repeatedly that we're going to start seeing a lot of deficit hawkery in about, oh, a month or so, about a month and a half. And you're going to start seeing the return of small government libertarianism when populism was so popular just a few months ago. I think it's a reasonable point that the incentive structure for for deal making for people who want to lead the Republican Party in the future would be crappy, no matter how Biden had won or what the narrative is. But what about Trump himself? Like, You know, Mitt Romney lost a presidential election and obviously hasn't gone away, flirted with a run in 2016, but was not an important political figure in American life in 2013 or 2014. John Kerry lost an election in 2004 and Democrats were so eager to show him the door that, you know, they wouldn't even acknowledge that he had overperformed the fundamentals and built an electoral college optimized coalition, (laughs) as your old colleague Matt Iglesias would say. Um... So, you know, there there is not a recent history in either political party of someone losing a presidential election and then remaining sort of William Jennings Bryan-esque as the figure you expect the party to nominate next time. Right. Like, is Trump actually cementing his position as leader of the opposition or does he fade in some sense once he's no longer able to literally own the libs from the White House itself? Donald Trump has never really shown exactly a great deal of interest in the act of governing. Um, I was very interested that there was a conservative outlet that argued that perhaps he should run and become House Speaker, which remained... um, I I see that as not being a thing that's going to happen because the act of governing is extremely boring. Um, It is extremely uninteresting and requires the type of deal-making that does not make for positional statements or acts of peak, which is really what Donald Trump enjoys most. And so I could see him becoming a figurehead, mainly an understanding 
of what it means to be Trumpian rather than being Trump himself. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So much of the messaging around this is not really based on Trump doing anything. And so I think that the idea of Trump is so much more powerful than Trump himself. And you'll even see Trump-supportive conservatives making similar arguments, saying that Trump the person who fights on the internet and says the wrong things is far more challenging to deal with than the Trump who they recognize as being a figurehead, the Trump behind which they can get all the judges they want, that he will approve of basically all popular conservative legislation, the understanding that he would just do whatever it is he wanted them to do, all he required was their undying support. And even if you read any number of National Review pieces that are making the argument against what Trump is currently doing about judicial nominations and he killed ISIS, which is eh, arguable, um, you know, all, any number of things that are like this list of achievements that no other Republican had put forward. And it's just that Trump, the person, keeps getting in the way of all of that. Yeah, I guess I think, though, that There's a distinction between what elite conservatives will want to do in the next four years, which I think would mostly be move beyond Trump and find a new leader, and what the narratives within their party will permit them to do. So that's a great place to stop because we're going to talk in the next segment about the future of populism and whether Trumpism as an ism could ever be more than just owning the libs. So we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org slash donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org slash donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. So we've been talking about the ways in which Republican attitudes towards the election result have veered into conspiracy theories and what that might mean moving forward. And obviously, as Jane was just saying, that kind of paranoia is part and parcel of whatever one calls Trumpism. But now I want to take a broader look at what Trumpism might mean, how Trump has changed the GOP, and how Trumpy if you will, the party might remain. And to discuss that, Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics has kindly agreed to join me and Jane. Sean, welcome to the argument. 
Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. It's a pleasure. I've been reading you for a very long time, and it's actually a privilege to have you on here. So please don't disappoint me. <laughs> uh, and and I, I say that in part because in many ways you were one of the most important prophets of the Trump phenomenon in the sense that way back in 2012 and 2013, after Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, when everybody else in the media was talking about how the Republicans needed to become a moderate, business-friendly, and very pro-immigration party in order to woo Hispanic voters, you were arguing and doing a lot of election analysis and data analysis to back this up, that there were actually lots and lots of white working-class voters, especially in the Midwest, who didn't turn out for Mitt Romney, but who could turn out for the GOP, and that there was a totally plausible future where to woo them and maybe also to woo some minority voters, the GOP would become more populist and nationalist rather than more moderate and chamber of commerce And that's what's happened, or has it, right? So just before the 2020 election, you wrote a piece saying the future of the GOP is Trumpy. So tell us what that means. I know Jane has some thoughts on whether Trumpism is a real thing, but you're the prophet. Tell us your working <laughs> definition of Trumpiness and Trumpism and why you think they're here to stay. I, I take the idea of Trumpism, as, as you suggested, is, is a sort of abstract idea, a, a skepticism towards trade, a skepticism towards immigration. The truth of the matter is, you know, the, the GOP has had this seed for a very long time. The Republican Party's always been kind of an uneasy alliance between upscale suburbanites and white working class voters going back to Nixon, sometimes less uneasy than other times. But you look at candidacies like Mike Huckabee's and Rick Santorum's in 2008 and 2012, even Pat Buchanan back in 1996, and, and you can see the seeds of what ultimately became Trumpism. And so I, I think to succeed— a Republican candidate in the future is going to have to latch on to some aspects of that. Now, do I think they have to go after gold star families and, and you know claim that judges of Mexican descent can't judge them fairly? No, I actually think that's counterproductive and was counterproductive for Trump. But I think, you know, the, the Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, economic libertarian and, you know, Pretend like we care about social conservatism and everyone knows we really don't, so we get the worst of both worlds. I think that GOP is just kind of a dead end. What are the core issues of a Trumpy GOP? To the extent that if you imagine that Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, which is very, very unlikely to happen, but you know, you were sitting around with a bunch of Republican politicians, none of whom were celebrity businessmen, but all of whom were trying to figure out how are you responsive to the things that Trump has exposed and revealed? You know, what are the 2020 to 2024 issues that they would be fastening on? Would it just be trade and immigration? Would it be something else? Like, what is the policy correlative of the kind of populism that Trump has maybe pursued? Look, I think part of Trumpism is Trump's celebrity. And in a lot of ways, Trump this is going to cause. Uh, hear, hear me out on this full sentence. In some ways, Trump is like Barack Obama. Uh, <laughs> no, you can't that. say anymore. You're done. The <laughs> sentence is done. No, he, he's a singular person with a singular appeal that is difficult to replicate. 
Trump's status as a celebrity, as someone who's been a fixture in American life for 40 years now, I think bought him some loyalty among some parts of the GOP and allowed him to get away with things. Like, I, I don't think you can win as a Republican anymore. Certainly not the nomination, but probably difficulty in the general with a path to citizenship is the core of your platform, the way George W. Bush did uh, in 2004. And I think being you know unabashedly pro-free trade is a tough pill for the modern Republican coalition. For better or for worse, judges are now litmus test, probably for both parties. And I should step back and say, like, this is not what I want, necessarily. I'm fairly pro-immigrant and like free trade. This is just kind of looking at the way the parties are shifting. I just don't see how you can be a party that depends on the Mahoning River Valley, you know, around Youngstown to win Ohio and be the Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, unabashedly pro-free trade party, regardless of, of what the economics of it actually are. Here's the thing here, because I think that, Sean, you have an understanding of Trumpism as Trumpism meaning something. And I have an understanding of Trumpism as Trumpism being the collection of ideas that have been projected onto Donald Trump. And the reason why I am dubious about what Trumpism will look like in the future is that every candidate who has thought of themselves as being the inheritor of Trumpism has picked up on one element or another element of what they believe Trumpism to be, but never on a cohesive whole. And especially because you mentioned Pat Buchanan, you mentioned his run uh, for office. But I think it's interesting, um, there's a terrific piece that I reference all the time from Matthew Walther about the history of social conservatism, that Pat Buchananism, or even what a social conservative understanding of politics before Trump looked like, necessitated doing something about it. Pat Buchanan would have been in support of a effort by Congress to, in some way, bar abortion access further. George W. Bush attempted to put a constitutional amendment against same-sex marriage in the Constitution, and that was very popular among social conservatives. And as Walther makes the point, Donald Trump just tweets about stuff a lot. And so I think that that has widened his appeal. But this understanding of Trumpism that has made it so effective also, I think, limits its future because it can be anything to anyone. You can have an understanding of Trumpism that is opposed to free trade, but somehow you can set up an organization or an agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States that was a different free trade agreement than the other free trade agreement. I would not be surprised if, had Trump won another term, we would see essentially a TPP just of a different name. And so what all of this to me looks like is a haggling over semantics and requiring that these ideas be put in a very specific way rather than an actual political platform. So I think that what the inheritors of Trumpism, who, let's be clear, look far better than they did when it was just Corey Stewart. <laughs> that was a rough time for all of us. But what that looks like, I think it's really indicative of Trumpism's future that there is no one person who appears to be willing to take on the entire mantle because there is no entire mantle. Trump is Trumpism. And even you see that the people who have, and we've seen even in the last couple of weeks, the people who have attempted 
to be the most supportive of Donald Trump or of Trumpism are the people he is willing to cast off earliest. We saw that with Jeff Sessions. And even now we're starting to see that with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who Donald Trump now loathes beyond all reasoning because he lost Georgia. I agree that that Donald Trump's kind of a singular figure and to be Trumpy without Trump is tricky. But I think that's true of all the kind of singular figures we have in American politics. If you look at Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, one of the problems she had was she was trying to run Barack Obama's. She even had some of the same ticks, like her advisors would go online and say, like, hey, we knocked on two million doors today and made three million voter contacts. It's the exact same stuff that Barack Obama's campaign was saying in 2008 and 2012. And Barack Obama's campaign just wasn't going to work for her. I think Joe Biden, you know, won with what we might call Obamaism, broadly speaking. But, I mean, obviously, he had to run a different campaign. The trick for Republicans is going to be kind of the same as it was for Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And it's the same as Republicans trying to take on the mantle of Reaganism without being Ronald Reagan. You have to kind of find something that works for you as a candidate while keeping the broad contours. Now, what are the broad contours of Trumpism? You know, you look towards the coalition that he put together, how it was different than other Republican coalitions. And it had a lot of the same core, obviously. You know, it's not like we suddenly saw a world where California and Colorado were voting Republican and and Alabama shifted towards the Democrats. The whole genesis of my missing whites idea was looking at 2012 returns from Ohio. And people thought that Romney and Ryan had a very good chance of winning here in Ohio. And you look at where things didn't go according to plans for them. And it was, it was Appalachia and Eastern Ohio and and kind of the old decaying industrial steel areas of Northeastern Ohio. And, and you ask yourself, or I asked myself at least, why did that happen? And, and I don't think you have to look much further than two things. Like Mitt Romney had car elevators and he put someone who looked like a stockbroker on the ticket with him, which then opened up the door for Barack Obama to run a series of ads here in Ohio, you know, hitting Romney on being a a vulture capitalist and, and, you know, taking away people's health care and destroying their companies, all of which was true to a certain extent. But it ended with the tagline, Mitt Romney, he's not one of us. And just very powerful commercials that kind of drove the point home to white blue collar voters like, hey, you can't trust this guy. When I wrote that Missing White Voters piece, I I certainly didn't have Donald Trump in mind. So I, I don't know that you have to have the exact Donald Trump argument, whatever that is. I think you need, if you're going to try to even make that path for the GOP, you need to back off the economic libertarianism. So in our first segment, Jane and I talked a little bit about to what extent does deficit hawkishness make a comeback for Republicans in the next four years. And clearly, to some extent, It will, right? Joe Biden will propose doing something or spending some amount of money and a large number of Republicans will suddenly once again discover that the budget deficit is way too high and we can't possibly afford it. But what I don't expect to see is a return of something like the Paul Ryan blueprints for transforming Medicare Maybe there'll be some Medicaid reform proposals, but there was this moment running from George W. Bush's Social Security reform push through the Romney-Ryan campaign where the Republican Party really committed over and over again to transforming entitlement programs. And to me, if Trumpism cashes out on any sort of macro policy change, like 
it's probably that, you know, at least until something dramatically changes in the interest rate environment or something, you're just not going to see Republicans putting forward those kind of long-term deficit-cutting ideas. And that, that to me, is a signal that there is a policy transformation here, not just a sort of personality shift. I think that what we're going to see is that Part of the Trumpism of 2015-2016 was making those promises based on an understanding that Donald Trump didn't particularly care about deficits and said so repeatedly. And you even have seen numerous Republicans over the last year saying like, oh, we'll get to caring about the deficit again. And that's something we're still worried about, even though they weren't so worried about it. The issue with even the entire conceit of entitlement reform is that it has been posited that there are certain good entitlements and certain bad entitlements. So what will, will happen, I think, is an understanding that Social Security is untouchable, but that Medicare and Medicaid reflect something else, or that other entitlements that benefit other people, I think those might likely be on the chopping block, especially when it gives Republicans the opportunity to grandstand about how they alone are standing up for a small government, especially as we're still in the midst of a pandemic that is likely going to require the spending of billions of dollars in increased health care output. One of the other things here is that so much of this is done not necessarily out of a deeply held belief on any of these Republicans, but on the understanding of what is proven politically effective. Donald Trump wasn't politically effective until he was politically effective, and there's every likelihood that he could be politically ineffective again. I think that one of the challenges we face is a deep recency bias in which we see our politics shaped so much so by Trumpism and by Donald Trump that we think that that is what it is going to look like in the future, where in two years there's every likelihood that we could see a completely different political calculus that sees the reemergence of the libertarian moment that seems to happen every four to five years, whereas while a working class populism and an increased social safety net may remain popular, it will still be that voters are heterodox. Voters can support Donald Trump, but also support marijuana legalization and want better oversight for police. And that same heterodox viewpoints among voters, I think, are going to be deeply impactful on what the future looks like, especially because the shifts and changes are very likely to be unexpected and perhaps less contingent on a version of Trumpism that exists now, or even one that is entirely reliant on Donald Trump. Let me ask you, uh, one of the recurring themes on the show, as in many places, is a sense of sort of America's ungovernability and the sort of permanence of gridlock and coalitions having this kind of dynamic where you know, as one coalition grows, it loses voters, and suddenly you're back to a 51-48, 50-49 politics. And this is something you've written about a lot. You wrote a whole book about it to some extent, right, called The Lost Majority. It seems to me that American politics historically has assumed that you can have presidents who are elected with 55% of the vote. Not that their coalitions will last forever, but that you can have these windows for governance where you have very powerful chief executives who win landslide elections, who can therefore either build big constituencies for their agenda in Congress or just bully the opposition party into going along with it. And 
part of what's happened under polarization, it seems to me, is that that possibility has been foreclosed. But with it, we've lost sort of the way that America used to be governed, right? And do you think that this sort of thermostatic or, you know, balloon dynamic is just, have we reached a point of sort of electoral efficiency where it's just impossible to build a 55% coalition anymore? So I'm still trying to take 2020 in because if you had asked me that two years ago, I would have said, no, American politics is basically how it's always been. And what's changed is that we don't have this universe where, uh, you know, Richard Nixon runs for re-election in 72 with 7% growth. Since growth has seemingly tapered off in the last couple decades, that's why you're getting these close elections, because it's hard to make the case to members of the other side's coalition. Yeah, you might not like everything I do, but look how awesome things indisputably are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what was the LBJ line in 64? It was like, these are the best times since Christ was born in Bethlehem or something. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways they were in 19. 19- like, it was a straight-faced argument. It was a straight-faced argument in 72 and 84. Not a straight-faced argument in 2004 or 2012. So you got close elections. 2020 has really, you know, I'm trying to decide how much I've shifted on this. But, you know, under that theory of how elections work, the world where... We had a 33% contraction in the second quarter and 250,000 Americans die of a plague. This should not have been a universe where the popular vote should have gone Democratic by just four points, like Donald Trump should have gotten clubbed. And Republicans should not have gained 15 seats in the House and held serve in the Senate, more or less. So I hate to pin myself down because I haven't 100% thought this through, but I'm starting to come around to that viewpoint that, yeah, we're just really polarized right now, that America is a collection of so many different factions with countervailing interests that it is just really, really difficult to put together that coalition that appeals to more than 51 or 52 percent of the country. I want to ask you to foretell the future. Um, I've become, as I said in the first segment, more convinced slash fearful that Trump himself will just persist as the leader of the opposition and the, you know, de facto nominee to be in 2024. Do you think that's right? And if not, how how does how does any other Republican leader in this environment emerge, you know, assuming that Trump does not pass away or, you know, give up politics and move to New Zealand? If he wants it, it's his. You know, I, I think if he is, if he had, in fact, lost this, like some of the polls were saying. Uh, yeah, sorry. Sean. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. I was just, I just, it's just a quite a, it's just quite a thought. If some of the polls had been right and he had lost by like 10 or 12 points and gotten blown out and lost Texas, maybe he would have had such the stink of a loser on him that it would have hurt him. Because part of his appeal is I win, but it, it was close enough that he could convince people wrongly, I will put the editorializing in there, that that he was a victim of of voter fraud, gave them something to believe that didn't cause them to change their mind about him, and he he will move forward. I I think the things that could change it is if he decides, no, I'd rather make a million dollars running my own TV network, join up with OANN or, or Newsmax or something, and go at it that way. Or if Cy Vance follows through on what he has said he is going to do and Donald Trump is is not available 
uh, to run. No, no, but he can run. See, this is I, I've I've, <laughs> did, I've had this a version of this argument uh, or with with Michelle, but I think legal persecution helps him. I mean, unless he's literally at a maximum security prison, and he, you know, even then, it does not hurt him in his if he wants to be the nominee oh. in twenty twenty four. So if we really want to go down this road, like the best thing that could happen to Republicans is that he is in jail um, because that's that solves their problems. They they have an excuse for not supporting Donald can, Trump because he's you, unavailable. Can you, run, can you run for president from jail? You probably can't. I mean, Eugene Debs did, but you can't tweet from jail. Uh, and so, <laughs> well, you know. I mean, I'm sure that if anyone can find a way to tweet from jail, yeah. it would be Donald Trump. Yeah, that that is like, you know, you would have the persecution narrative that would keep his supporters on board while, you know, not having him running around in, insulting suburban uh, voters and whatnot. If from the Democratic side, the kind of slow drip from Cy Vance would probably be the best thing. Like, okay, we have these new findings and you publish it, but you never quite get to the prosecution until maybe like right before uh, the election. I hate to talk about this purely through the lens of politics because I think there's a very real chance that there's something very bad and illegal in there. Um, but, you know, since we do have our political hats on, uh, that's the way I'm going to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the political kind of, as you put it, persecution narrative probably helps him within the Republican Party but I think is is very difficult for a general election. All right, Sean, there's much more to say, but <laughs> for now, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. So, Jane, before we go, since this is your argument debut, in order to haze you, I have to ask you for a recommendation for our listeners this week. What do you have for us? So... I've taken up bike commuting. I started this a couple of months ago where I just bike everywhere. And I live in Washington, D.C., which, if you don't know, is about five feet across and six feet (laughs) wide. Um, But bike commuting has really been an awesome part of my life. There are a lot of really good trails to go on. So my spouse and I, we took the Mount Vernon Trail last weekend. And the weekend before, we biked to Bethesda, Maryland, um, which is the hip hop and in place that is in Bethesda, Maryland, if you know anything about that area. It, describing it as hip-hoppingist is probably the f- worst thing anyone has ever said about Bethesda. But it's been great, and I've become one of those bike people. I've been turned into Calvin's dad from the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons trip, where I started. I bike in terrible weather, and I'm like, ah, yes, my character is building. And I, I think more people should bike. Excellent. All right, Jane, be well. And that's our show for the week. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be back here next week when I finally reunite with Michelle. The Argument is, as always, a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Alison Bruzek, Vishaka Darba, Elisa Gutierrez, Phoebe Lett, Isaac Jones, Paula Schumann, Kate Sinclair, and Kathy Too. Special thanks to Corey Schreppel and Michelle Harris. See you next week. I don't know what 2024 will look like if we are seeing Donald Trump running against Donald Trump Jr. Who knows? Um, (laughs) Now I have spoken that into the universe and I will reap the whirlwind. It's Tiffany who's going to run the campaign against her father, actually. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. 
I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.